Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. Hey, Laura. Hey, Sarah. Happy birthday. Thank you. Podcast partner. It's Laura's birthday today. She's 27. Okay. Again. So, again. Yep. So, this week's episode is called From Liberty to Libertine, an early history of the combat zone with Anthony Samarco. In Anthony Samarco's book, Lost Boston, Samarco lovingly resurrects buildings and institutions that have disappeared from Boston's ever-evolving map. Long before the combat zone was the combat zone, it was called Frog Lane, which became Boylston Street, and Orange Lane, which became Washington Street. Anthony Samarco is a gem of Boston, having written over 80 books on the subject. From Cambridge to Copley to the infamous combat zone we'll be discussing today, he has covered nearly every neighborhood of our amazing city. He has also written the bestseller, The History of Howard Johnson's How a Massachusetts Soda Fountain Became a Roadside Icon and The Great Boston Fire of 1872 and many others. He is a noted lecturer and historian and was elected a fellow at the Massachusetts Historical Society and is a proprietor of the famed Boston Athenaeum. Anthony, who was originally from Dorchester, is truly an expert on Boston history. Welcome, Anthony. We're very, very pleased to have you on the show. I'm very pleased to be here and thank you for having me. Anthony, I spent yesterday doing a deep dive into you on YouTube and into some of the things you've written. How fascinating. I had no idea Howard Johnson started in Dorchester. Well, he was born in Dorchester, moved to Wollaston as a just a child in arms. But he did start his first business in Wollaston. And the thing was, basically, in 1925, he started at a corner store. And it provided cigars, cigarettes, newspapers, magazines, and three forms of ice cream. And the reason it actually excelled was adjacent to it was the Wollaston Depot of the Granite Branch of the Old Colony Railroad. And in that instance, commuters to Boston would actually stop there for something to enjoy on the train. And it was something that then spurred on in 1929, the first restaurant. Amazing. And hotels, correct? Yeah. Very much so. Sort of motel hotel. 1951. Well, you know, let's get back to the combat zone a little bit. I was deep diving yesterday on the Liberty Tree, and really, if trees could speak, 
there was a stately Elm Street that became the rallying point for the Sons of Liberty revolutionaries to gather. And this was right around the American Revolution. Well, the Elm Tree that you mentioned was something that grew in front of the Liberty Tree Tavern. The Liberty Tree Tavern was a wonderful place for potent libations. It was at the corner of Washington Street and present-day Essex Street. And during the period of the 17th and 18th century, it was frequented by everyone, really. It was a pub, so to speak. And in that instance, the tree itself was something that not only shaded the street, but during the Revolutionary War period from the 1765 period onward, the tree became a symbol of the Sons of Liberty. And in many instances, this grouping of men who were not only loyal to the king, this is ironic, because in 1770, they created what was called the Suffolk Resolves, which started with that they were loyal to King George III, but they had grievances. They had no representation in Parliament. So I think in a lot of ways, this tavern with this wonderful tree was a place that they hoisted their cups of punch, which was usually 99% alcohol with a lemon (laughs) cut into it. And that tree became a symbol of their desire for liberty. And they would hang lanterns on it. They would hang effigies of the royal representatives in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. But I think in a lot of ways, it was something that not only became such a rallying point, but it was cut down by the British soldiers and used for firewood because it was, in this instance, an icon of the revolution. Yes. And it's something that I had read that in 1766, John Adams met with the Sons of Liberty and really discussed their opposition to the Stamp Act, which was Britain's way of levying a tax on every written document by the Massachusetts colonists. And they were really starting to shift from loyalists to revolutionaries at that point. Well, Verma, I mean, everything was taxed. They had the Townsend Acts. It not only taxed the stamp, which is something that's a legal document. That stamp would be required for a will, a marriage certificate, or any other type of land transfer. But they'd also have a Sugar Act. They had a Glass Act. I mean, every single aspect of society was taxed. And one pays tax, but at least one expects representation. And we do have it in the Senate and the House of Representatives. But at that time, there was no representation for the colonies in the British Parliament. When they actually taxed tea, which was the drink of choice, people began to realize in some ways that they had to take a stand. And they really did. This was something that many people would make a beverage out of ground roasted acorns or rose hips or many other different types of things. We might think of them as almost medicinal teas, but they did rally together. And that tree was something as a rallying point, just like the banning of tea, that if you were a true patriot, you did not drink tea. This was something in a lot of ways that Boston, which had a population of around 17,000 people, could actually see it as a way to rally the troops, so to speak. And they did. It was something that was a major part of the community at that time. Hence the no taxation without representation. That's that's the overarching theme here. When the Liberty Tree was cut down by the British in 1775, I believe it was, 
Yes. British soldiers yes. cut down this very symbolic tree. This is kind of a forgotten icon too. Really, We think of things that connect to the revolution, but I love resurrecting this icon. And to this day, you can see the Liberty Tree icon right at that area. I think it's above a Dunkin' Donuts or something like that yeah. now. It was a building designed in the 1840s by Hammett Billings, a very well-known architect. And when he built it, it was ground floor shops and offices and a hall directly above. But he did this wonderful niche with a three-dimensional Liberty Tree plaque. And I've always loved it. Ever, ever since I was a child, I knew where I was because I saw that Liberty Tree plaque. And we'll post that for our Facebook Great. participants and that kind of, it's a beautiful little, you're right. It's kind of like a bar relief plaque on this building. And it was recently restored, but when I was a child, there was a second Liberty Tree in Boston, and it was on Boston Common. During the bicentennial, an artist created a Liberty Tree out of aluminum. And this aluminum tree, which had a huge girth, as well as branches that cascaded on either side, was something that I couldn't imagine. I mean, here I was, even as a child, a historian. I loved Boston history. And that tree would eventually go to the Liberty Tree Mall in Danvers, Massachusetts. <laughs> oh, oh, a so, oh, a sign of the times, huh? Oh, so wow. I don't know what would happen to it, but I think it's probably recycled. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. How funny. I was thinking about this, too, and reading about your history of the. It really is this area goes from the American Revolution to the sort of Industrial Revolution, because this becomes quite a, a spot for commerce. Can you speak to that a bit? Well, you know, Washington Street, which we know as a major road in downtown Boston, continues on to the Rhode Island line. But in that period of the 1770s right through to 1810, it was a neighborhood. I mean, there were houses, there were places of worship, there were taverns. It was something that a lot of people actually lived. But by the period of the 1840s and 50s, the commercial overlay began to actually occur. And we began to see shops along Washington Street because it was the major route into Boston as well as leaving the city. And in 1822, when Boston became a city, it was a terminus. And at that time, we not only had stagecoaches, but we would eventually see the aspect of horse-drawn streetcars along Washington Street. Now, Washington Street was known as Orange Street, Marlborough Street, and Corn Hill during the period of the 18th and early 19th century. And it was combined eventually after Washington's visit to Boston in 1789. But during that period, it was also something that linked the mainland by what was called the Neck. Now, the Neck is Washington Street and Boston's South End. So Boston proper, which was 800 acres, would end roughly at about where Tufts New England Medical Center is located. Mm -hmm. And there was a thin neck of about 100 feet in width that sometimes could be flooded by the ocean that would actually connect you to Roxbury, which was an independent town and later a city until 1868. Washington Street in downtown Boston would change decisively. And by the Civil War, Boston's population, which hovered at about 165,000, would actually see in some ways half of people, not only through matriculation, but through immigration. This area was changing so tremendously that it was being built up. And it wasn't just a fashionable neighborhood. Now it was becoming something that was densely built 
densely settled and the whole area would change so much so that by 1900 the area included such things as not only cinemas but they also had one of the largest yiddish daily newspapers in the world that was located in that stretch of washington street fascinating we, it is and i think when we think of washington street and we think of between formerly frog lane or now boylston street and essex street all the way down to Neyland Street. And we realized in that whole aspect, this was something that changed to embrace New Boston. So in essence, it did deal with old Boston during the revolution and the Sons of Liberty and the Liberty Tree. But by 1900, this was something that was not only a major destination for entertainment, but it also was something that was making a statement of how Boston had embraced now, first, second, and even sometimes third generation immigrants that were contributing to the fabric of the city of Boston. Very interesting. And then I think at some point too, Charles Bullfinch, I think I got his first name right, who built the state house, builds a building in that area. He did, and it was called Boylston Hall. Today, it's at the corner of what would have been Washington Street and Boylston Street. And it's a lovely building where the Urban College of Boston is located. But this was a building that was a major feature because it was five stories in height. It was something that had not only ground floor shops, but it also had in that instance up above all sorts of office space. During the early part of the 19th century, that was something that you began to realize was an attraction to the city. But that building itself today, named for Ward Nicholas Boylston, a great merchant who gave that hall not only to the town of Boston, but also had Boylston Hall directly above where the Handel and Haydn Society performed for decades. So it was something in a lot of ways that was part of the city, not only had a supermarket, but it also had the aspect of being a an assembly hall of all different ilks, music, horticulture, as well as even um, exhibitions. Would it be sort of, to our Bostonian listeners, would this be something akin to the way Faneuil Hall is, although less commercial? Is this kind of the idea behind Very this much. building? Yeah. Charles Bullfinch had designed Faneuil Hall, honestly, as the first supermarket in Boston. And Peter Faneuil, who funded it, not only had on the ground floor, and I remember this as a child because my father's office was nearby, but it was actually something that had groceries. When I was a child, it was mostly meat. I can remember eating raw hot dogs out of a wooden case or something. But it was something just like Boylston Market, as well as Cambridge Street Market that was in the West End. These were all designed by Bullfinch. And what they were doing was really supplying the public with fresh foods, vegetables that are brought in from the countryside along the neck through Washington Street, but also fresh meats and poultry and fish. And eventually, Quincy Market supplanted Faneuil Hall, though right through to the 1960s, when that area of North Market and South Market were mostly meatpacking houses we would see Faneuil Hall's first floor still being used for retail purposes. So that was one of the premises of Peter Faneuil, but so too wasn't it of Ward Nicholas Boylston. Wow, wow. So let's jump ahead a little bit 
And we are talking about the combat zone, right? So yeah, yeah, we we do have to talk about the body part of this as well. Take us a little bit to prior to the combat zone becoming the red light district in Boston. The red light district was formerly in Scully Square. Why was that? And that's to present day government center. And it's called Brutalist Architecture. It's these horrible buildings, in my opinion, but down in, in government center. But why did Scully Square first become the kind of nexus for the red light activities and the theaters and the adult bookstores and that sort of thing? The West End of Boston, and I do consider Court Street at Cambridge Street, the very beginning of the West End that continues to the Charles River, was a fashionable area. Everybody perceived the West End by the 1940s and 50s as a slum that needed urban renewal. But during the period of the late 19th century, you began to realize that Scully Square, that was named after a man named William Scully, he was a man whose family had immigrated from Scotland, was the man who actually had a house in the very center of what is today Cambridge Street, opposite Boston City Hall Plaza. And it was there that he directed the stagecoaches, both arriving and departing from Boston. During that period, in 1838, the city of Boston named that intersection after him. And it was something that actually continued right through to the period of the 1960s. Today, if we said Scully Square, I don't think half the population would even know what we're talking about. But during that period, of course, if you're taking a stagecoach, which could be anywhere from a day or two's ride, you'd want something to fortify yourself, coffee, even a drink or some food to take on that stagecoach. So what began happening in the Scully Square area was there were restaurants and sandwich shops and, yes, taverns and bars. By the 1850s and 1860s, even though the area just adjacent to it, which was on Beacon Hill known as Pemberton Square, a square that rivaled Lewisburg Square with its magnificent houses, China trade families, and great wealth, this whole area began to change very subtly from a residential to a commercial aspect. By the 1860s, not only was the Back Bay being infilled, but the South End had actually begun in some ways to almost be completed. Many of these families moved to the Back Bay, and the area became not only the population aspect that would actually see entertainment, but they also had schools and offices, and eventually they built the Suffolk County Courthouse on Pemberton Square. It was decisive by the 1870s, and the area, as Scully Square was known, had actually become something that was a place of entertainment. And one of the biggest was the old Howard. It was originally designed by Isaiah Rogers. It was a place of worship, in that instance, of God. It was a Millerite temple that was headed by William Miller, a minister who seemed to perceive that the world would end on a specific day. And when it didn't, his congregation <laughs> filled the building and it became a place of entertainment. And the old Howard was called the Howard Athenaeum, which featured musicals and traveling theatrical groups. It had, yes, comedy acts, but it also had the beginnings of burlesque. And it attracted people because these were body vaudeville acts and they would have things not just local, but they even had them from Europe. And one of the first really true burlesque was Lydia Thompson and her British Blondes. This was a group 
that actually came with risque dresses that only ended at half calf. Oh my, oh, Anthony, be still my heart. And each of them had a blonde wig. And this was something that brought in people by the droves. So burlesque, which was much more tame than what we would see eventually burlesque of the 20th century, was something that began to change this into a bustling area of transportation, dining, as well as entertainment. By 1895 to 1900, this was a place that not only had, as we saw here, burlesque houses such as the old Howard, but it also had the Crawford House, which was another major place, movie palaces that actually showed silent films accompanied by a pianist, newsreels and comedy acts. They would have theaters. They would also have silent films. And they also had people coming to the restaurants, bars, sandwich shops. And it became, as many people said, a bustling array of nightclubs packed with soldiers and sailors, politicians, businessmen, couples on dates, mm-hmm. and the single man seeking a night of fun. <laughs> Interesting. That's fascinating. And so when we're getting up into the 1950s, 1960s, what is this area looking like? Well. As one woman said, it was a vortex, and it was something that drew in people of all walks of life. There was once a rumor that every sailor who was to dock in Boston knew how to get to Scully Square even before they arrived in Boston, even though they had never visited here before. But I think by that period, it was something in some ways that people looked at the Scully Square area as a place that not only was a little bit salacious, a little bit risque, a little bit outre, especially in Boston. But it did bring in all sorts of people. And it didn't matter one's education, background, socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity. It was fun. And there was one old story. And this was a woman named Alison Arnold. And when I was a child, she was the society editor for the Boston Globe. So I'm kind of surprised when I was doing this research that she talked about the area of Scully Square, and she gave a little bit of a quote that actually talked about the old Howard. And she said that many a Harvard freshman sneaked into the old Howard and glanced furtively around to see if there was anyone who would recognize him and tell his old man that he had been there. And as he was going out, one young man was chagrined to meet his father going in. <laughs> That's a great little Ivy League bit Wonderful. Right there. <laughs> yeah, very fitting. So how did this progress to the 70s, to them separating? Well, ironically, by the 1950s, the city of Boston was eyeing different parts of the city to be renewed. And the whole aspect of urban renewal was If one accepted federal funds, it had to be for blighted neighborhoods. And it wasn't just the West End that was perceived as a blighted neighborhood. They also demolished parts of the South End to create the cathedral housing development. They did in the South End the Castle Square housing development, Fidelis Way in Brighton, Dorchester's Town Field dorchester's franklin field these were areas that had housing that was built to give a step up sometimes to men returning from the world war ii but it was also something in a lot of ways that was seeing this area of the west end changing and because eminent domain allowed the city to take much of the property and give pennies on the dollar 
the West End between 1950 and 1960 would actually see an increase of demolition. Of course, where does one go? And by the period of the mid-1950s, many people began to look at the area that became known as the Combat Zone as the second most popular place of entertainment in the city. This was an area really just between Boylston and Essex Street and Neyland Street. And in that way, many people looked at this as something that it was not only developed, but it was also something that brought people, like they did to Scully Square, to actually come to the theaters. And there were many legitimate theaters. They had the State Theater, the Paramount, the Mayflower, the Globe Theater, the Gaiety, the Paramount. These were enormous museums of really culture. A museum such as a theater is something that not only had magnificent architecture and really attractive space, but it provided entertainment. But by the 1960s, this was something that was subtly changing because, of course, Scully Square was obliterated almost completely by 1961. Going to the combat zone, this was something that you began to realize that these formerly legitimate theaters that showed first-run movies were now beginning to show subtle forms of adult entertainment. And adult X-rated movies became the du jour type of thing that was done. But the area was something during World War II that was not only lined with sailors and soldiers on leave in Boston, just like Scully Square. But by 1951, it was such a dangerous place that one of the judges in Boston, his name was Judge George Roberts, said of the area, quote, it is really a combat zone. And it was popularized by a series of expose articles on the area by Jean Cole. She was a writer for the Boston Daily Record. And in that instance, we began to realize by 1970, there were over three dozen sex-related businesses, including adult bookstores, peep shows, new dancing venues. And each of these things were a little more salacious than they might have been at Scully Square. But of course, we had a more mature audience. And, it, and, and look, it's the late 60s, 70s, too. Right, there's been kind a sexual this, revolution. Kind of cultural revolution going right. on as well. So you've gone from... As you said, I love the I love the dresses because Victorian Boston to reveal your ankles was, oh my gosh, this is a scandal, newsworthy scandal. But to go from that to what you actually had in the combat zone, which was some very gritty stuff, really. It was. And that was the thing. I mean, people didn't seem to realize. I mean, here you had marquees that had neon signs and they were blinking. Those blinking not only attracted the eye, but they attracted the person. And there was a man named Sam Alice. He wrote for the Boston Globe, and he said, quote, you had men trolling, undergraduates ogling. You had small, seedy men leaning on parking meters, eyeing and smoking, and people punching each other's lights out. It was a gamey playground for anyone interested in adventure of a certain kind, and the zone was nothing but sleaze, unquote. And in that instance, it was something that might have been perceived as sleaze, But there was a sense of titillation, of excitement and attraction. And whether one wants to accept it or not, it was perfectly legal. And the city of Boston continued it, issuing permits for not only bars, but entertainment venues. And it was something that was contained within a specific area now known as the combat zone. 
Was that successful though? I look at it like you had this little four block radius of basically like the way Amsterdam is smoke weed, good sex, prostitutes, anything goes, anything goes, Vegas, whatever. Did it work? This four block radius? It was increasing. Now, one of the things is in 1974, Kevin White, who was the mayor of the city of Boston, in an attempt to contain the spread of these adult businesses, especially into the area of Chinatown, which was also increasing in size with increased numbers of immigrants from China and the mainland, he designated the area, the combat zone, as the city's adult entertainment district. And it was exempted from the usual ban on flashing neon signs, so the bright lights of the combat zone beckoned Bostonians nightly. And it expanded. It expanded from Essex and Boylston Street north all the way to Avery Street. And of course, we saw it on Essex Street and on Boylston Street. So it encompassed every sort of entertainment imaginable. But in that instance, this was something that was a major city. Boston is a large city on the East Coast. And the combat zone, just like Scully Square to those sailors docking in Boston, the combat zone was something that everybody had heard of. Some people had visited, but when you did, it was kind of like that old adage, you never went in as the way you came out. (laughs) That's very funny. No, I just, I know Sarah and I growing up being in high school in the eighties, even it was like, you didn't go near there. You stayed away. Oh, speak for yourself. Oh, I know. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Harvard over here was, was there. Yeah. No, it was fascinating. Yeah, but it was, it was fascinating. It was very intriguing knowing it was was there. What's interesting to me too, I didn't realize with Scully Square and with the combat zone, it sounds like it was an unusual mix of people too who would come. That's what they sort of had in parallel, which in Boston, which is notoriously segregated and you don't cross a bridge to Charlestown if you live in in South Boston and especially the North End, et cetera. But here are these centers in Boston where people are mixing, people from different walks of life and very it's, much so. Yeah. And different ages as well. So you might have had that Harvard educated father seeing his son who was at Harvard at the old Howard. And it wasn't thought odd. It was a jocular laugh that people would actually share that little thing. When I do lectures on this book, which is The Other Red Line, many people will say, oh, my father or grandfather spoke of this, or even that their mother had gone to some of these productions. Because in a lot of ways, Scully Square was tame in comparison. Women did wear body stockings. They were covered from their neck to their toes. They might dance in a risque way. And in that instance, it was something that was titillating, but it was really graphic in the combat zone. And I say in the book, as Scully Square's allure waned in the late 1950s, that of the combat zone took on a new shine in the 1960s albeit a tawdry and garish shine that tried to emulate the other, but quickly devolved into a seedy, gritty place that offered vulgar and graphic entertainment. Right, because then you Yeah. Because then you had prostitutes on the street. Crime and, and drugs. New yeah. dancers and yeah. pickpockets and pimps and, and drugs. Mo- and mob right. involvement. We're talking with Emily Sweeney later on this afternoon about oh. What I appreciate, Laura and I are of a certain generation. 
She is 27 today, but you know. Wow. Uh, <laughs> a day over 26. <laughs> Thank you. Since this is being recorded, but the audience will appreciate that. But we are women of a certain generation. And it's so, I, what I love about your books, Anthony, it's like this nostalgia historical bath for me in some ways. It's like, oh, yes, I remember that. And it's so wonderful to, I love what you're doing. You are preserving the integrity of this wonderful city that we live in. Oh, amazing. I, I'm, I feel like I'm, so I'm good for gifts for years to come now. Yeah, me too. I want to oh. say one thing. I have a Facebook page, which is called Lost Boston. Oh, okay. And the surprising thing is it has 21,000 people. Oh, you so when I'm doing a book, I will post a photograph with a little caption. And ironically, it will be viewed by 5,000 people out of the 21. But at least a hundred, sometimes up to five or six hundred, will comment, and it's wonderful because it really goes the gamut of ages, ethnicity, race, religion. And I've come to view these people as my friends because many people comment on a posting. So when I'm doing a book, say the other red line from Scully Square to the Combat Zone, I would post a picture and people would comment. I remember this stripper, or I remember this bar, and the whole concept is when I write, I try to do this as a shared aspect. Many people don't realize how much they are contributing to the fabric of the book. And anyone who makes a comment that I use, I credit in the acknowledgments because in a lot of ways, this is something that is such an important part of our history. But I think many times people who are under the age of 25 have no idea what Scully Square is, let alone the combat zone. Oh, I would say under 35. I asked at work and people had no, then when I told them they were fascinated. Oh, for for them, that area is the Kensington condo complex and the Dunkin' Donuts and Northeastern. I almost feel like it's like under 40. They're just clueless. But I think one of the concepts is these books. And, you know, I've done series of books, not only with Arcadia Publishing, but I've been doing these new books with a company called Font Hill. Alan Sutton, who started Arcadia 40 years ago, and I've been writing with him ever since. We meet in London and we discuss different types of things. I mean, a lot of the books are cookie cutters. They look just the same whether one lives in Haverhill or Brockton or Back Bay or Holliston. And I think one of the concepts there is I try to make them somewhat more unique. So this book, which was totally outre, totally outside of my box, I had such fun with. And many times my friends will say to me, I can see you laughing as you're writing. (laughs) I had fun with it. And I thought in a lot of ways, I too patronized the combat zone. But I used to think because I had dark hair and a dark mustache, and that if I wore a denim jacket, I looked Hispanic. And in that instance, I could go to these bars and simply observe people. But I was fascinated with this, even at the time, because I knew it could never, never last. Especially when they were building Avery Street with multi-million dollar condominiums. And my parking space, when I taught at the Urban College of Boston, was under the Ritz-Carlton. And I came out onto Boylston Street, and I knew if I see what I see, I don't think the people who own a $10 million condominium want to see it either. Yeah. So I think one of the whole concepts is these are cyclical things. And today we might see something on a roadside with an adult P 
peep show, but the whole concept is it has the same impact as when it's an entire neighborhood. And it's almost like a smorgasbord that one could go to and choose whatever salaciousness of the day is. Like, I I almost think of like the squire up in Revere. Like, it's like this kind of little pocket of sleeves up there. We have to get going, I think, Anthony. We could talk to you. I I literally could talk to you. Oh, I could, yeah, forever. Hours. Tell our listeners where they can find your books, where they can find you. Give yes, your- and and they should all go on to Lost Boston on Facebook because I love that you I'm joining. that you put their comments on. You know, I would appreciate that. Well, I basically my name is located on Facebook as well. People can contact me there, and yes, I do have Lost Boston on Facebook. Books are available in any major bookstore, but Amazon.com is a great provider for it. I give lectures throughout the Boston community. I I hate to tell you, but since I retired last year and I had a financial career for 40 years, I was somebody in a lot of ways that was restricted to evenings and weekends. And now it seems as though I can give a lecture at one o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) So if they check my Facebook page, anything that's open to the public is always posted. But this was something in a lot of ways, this book was fun to do. And I'm, I'm very honored that you would actually ask me to speak about it. And I'd love to give one little ditty. And this is something about the old Howard. A man named Frank Hatch, who was a man who wrote poems and all sorts of different things in the mid-20th century, wrote about the old Howard. And he said that Boston has two Athenaeums built on Beacon Hill. One is for scholars with books by the score, the other for lads who seek life in the roar. The Boston Athenaeum's lights are bright, but the Howard Athenaeum's locked up tight. Some purist got himself a jurist and slapped a padlock on the door. Some coward closed the old Howard. And in 1961, after almost a decade of being closed by the New England Watch and Ward Society, the old Howard miraculously caught fire during urban renewal. Mm -hmm. And when it was burning, it was said that there were thousands of men with a tear trickling down their cheek watching the old Howard burn. (laughs) I love it. I love it too. Oh, Anthony, thank you so, so much. Oh, and I have to correct one thing. Stuart Weitzman is from Haverhill. Haverhill. And and he's an Ivy Leaguer as well. Oh, and he is an Ivy Leaguer. He went to UPenn and has a building at UPenn. But apparently Haverhill was going to build a big something in Haverhill for him pre-COVID. And then COVID happened. Very good. Yeah. So I had to correct myself there. Anthony, it's been such a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank and we'll, you. We'll, yes. We'll put a link to your book on our site. Thank After you. All your, all your, your books. books. Yes. <laughs> Take care. I'll be in Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Anthony. Murder. Murder.